Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. February 4th, 2024, episode 237, Wicked. Hello, everyone. Welcome into the corner, the Beekeeper's Corner. Glad you stopped by and hope you pull up a chair and stay a while. For I'm excited to talk about this topic as it has been a long time coming. I just got home from a session with the Hunterdon County Parks Department. Sharon and I were signed up for a late winter session on how to tap maple trees for maple syrup and well, that was fun. For a long time, it's been on our bucket list to figure out what trees we have in our backyard and whether that's an option for us and well... All I have to say after having set in on that is we are so spoiled with the honey we harvest given what it takes to render the sap from the water that comes out of the tree and make it into what we recognize as maple syrup. At the moment, I'm sitting here nursing a glass of adult beverage. Not a common thing for me in the grand scheme of things, but in this instance, you'll grasp what it's about as I'm drinking a byproduct of the peach mead that we made back in December. At some point this weekend, I racked off the mead off the peach puree used to make our latest batch, and when I strained it, I ended up with a lot of booze-laden puree that had, well, a lot of neat flavor to it, and I decided to make a daiquiri out of it. I put a sample of it in a Chinese food container last night, stuck it in the freezer, and a few minutes ago I transformed it into a Sunday afternoon treat. Both Sharon and I are enjoying this special aside, and if I'm honest, (laughs) wow, I am a bit touch warmed up by it, and Sharon, she's likely sleeping it off upstairs if I know her. I kind of live by waste, not, want, not. And I don't let anything go to waste if I can help it. But wow, this is some potent stuff. And well, I do my best. But if I start slurring towards the end of this episode, well, forgive me. I don't drink much. And all I have to say is, wow. Hmm. Moving on. (laughs) This is a single topic episode. And before I tell you what I'm going to do, I'm in a playful mood. So I'm going to give you a Jeopardy music pause and ask you if you could figure out what does the title Wicked refer to? Think of that. What am I going to talk about? Okay, enough of that. Did you get it? It's about making candles. And if you didn't know this already, there's almost always some tie to the topic at hand when considering the title of the episodes. I am going to talk to you about making tapered beeswax candles. And in the end, you're going to hear me say one of the most critical elements of the way a candle performs is the wick, hence the tie-in. I know, I'm a little goofy. With no further elaboration... I'm going to dive right in to the deep end and we can go ahead and get started. 
Growing up in my hometown of Flemington, New Jersey, there's an area of town that served in olden times as a train hub for goods and services. In the heyday, trains would come to retrieve the fruits, vegetables, and products produced across the region and transport them out to Philadelphia, New York, and beyond. In time, as it is with the passage of time, the practices of the early 1900s gave way to modernization and the hub use dissipated. The mill closed down and the train stopped running. The only sign of it being there today is the nostalgic number 60 ride of an 1800-era steam train on what remains of the tracks between Flemington and Ringo's, New Jersey, which is now my hometown. In the 60s, when the train stopped running, someone decided to revitalize the area, and they built a quaint, nostalgic village out of it. That was operational at the time I attended middle school, and that part of town was known to the locals as Liberty Village and Turntable Junction. The origin of Turntable Junction, as its name suggests, was the remnants of the larger turntable in the middle of the square, that, in that period, was lined with small, quaint shops around the former gathering place. Part of the 60s and early 70s renovation was a small turn-of-the-century town designed with quaint little village, designed replete with a general store, a blacksmith, small gardens with animals, and, well, the staff wore period correct garb and frequently gave displays on how to do handmade crafts from the bygone era. It was parallel to Colonial Williamsburg of Virginia, but on a smaller scale. One of the features that I remember distinctly was the candle making shop. The smell of beeswax candles Long poles with candle wicks being dipped in vats of wax and tapered candles hanging throughout the shop in various shapes, colors, and sizes. As youths, my twin and I spent a lot of time in the village, hanging out, and somewhere along the line the candle maker invited us in for a private mini-show and let us dip the candles. Looking back fondly on the memory, I can come to appreciate the work that was required, given what I know about handling wax, and have always admired the craft of hand-dipped beeswax candles. A Kevin moment. I have no clue who the people were that operated that thing, but think about it. Some, I'll just say decades later, here I am talking about it, and I still have the impression of what they showed us. And I'd have to say to them, mission accomplished, because I think that's what they were game for. End of Kevin moment. Now, as to making tapered candles in current times, I think I'm more of a one-and-done kind of guy. I want to make a few, and I want to be done. Maybe somewhere along the line, I'll do it again. That's not to say in current times, I do not admire them any less. It's more like I look at the nostalgia a little bit more pragmatically now that I'm older. There's a knock in the world perspective on pure beeswax candles, especially from the point of a beekeeper. 
we know the backstory to its full extent, the labor of love it takes to produce pure beeswax. We also know quite quickly what the value is for all that work for rendered beeswax and see that pure beeswax tapered candles are really wholly unappreciated by the uninclined. If you put two candles out for sale, and the regular Joe ones were cheaper. Even if the more expensive ones were labeled as pure beeswax, most consumers would simply be accustomed to, I'll take the cheaper ones. To them, a candle is a candle, and it's unlike the olden days when you relied on candles for light and so on, that you understood the value of how good beeswax candles were. In some perspective, or more true to the point of someone who's a beekeeper that might wish to profit from the production of beeswax, taper candles are sure a hard sell in today's economy. The problem is they use a lot of precious wax and it's hard to find the right consumer who knows and cares that these candles are far superior to everyday candles and well, it's a bit of a hassle with no profit margin, so why bother? All this is to say that I somewhat subscribe to that point of view. I would only want to make a small batch of candles, maybe every once in a while, and would only consider the wares for personal use. So the operation that I'm going to describe to you is on an extremely small scale. I am not looking to go commercial here. I want to provide them for friends and family, and I'll be sure to fill them in when I hand them over so that they can appreciate the custom craft of what they're receiving. All that to say that the setup I'm about to describe is decidedly going to be as simple and small scale as I can make it. I'm not planning to build some semi-permanent candle making station. This is more targeted to a once in a blue moon, hey, I feel like making candles arrangements and, well, I might have the equipment to pull out so I don't have to start from scratch. And I guess I'll start by saying one day, a long time ago, I found an article, or maybe you refer to it as a guide, online. And it was a resource called Countryside Daily, and I've had it bookmarked forever to come back to it to begin my journey. That guide steps you through the basics of prep, materials, and process and gives you kind of a roadmap of what you need to learn. It was the original inspiration I had tucked away long ago that started me on the quest for researching this topic and figuring out my path of what I'm about to tell you I'm going to do. Now in current day, I will say that I consulted a wide array of conference notes, websites, videos, reference articles during my research, which has been going on for the better part of a decade based on when I put that original teaser away one day in my someday maybe file. And it somewhat begs the question, why now? Well, if you listen to one of my recent shows, then you know we have a cache of wax that needs a bit of attention. And well, now's the time to do something with it. And I could kill two birds with one stone. And as I record this, I'm thinking, this will go down, meaning I'm going to do this operation in the next one week, three weeks, four weeks, 
and I am currently in my final planning stages and my intent is to tell you what I plan to do and then eventually I'll tell you how it worked out. But before I do, I have to say something in a manner that gets the point across. I am going to do this in a way that is really heavy handed. When it comes to the expertise of what I'm going to say to you, I'm all talk. I'm all talk. I will sound like I know what I'm talking about, but I have no real world experience. How to explicitly make dipped tapered candles. What the heck am I doing? Let me explain. If you know anything about me, you know it's in my nature to be uber prepared. And on that front, I'm patient to a fault. I will not undertake something without a firm grasp of how to do it. So I could talk a good game because I've done my homework. In the past, a one-off listener who was not a beekeeper found the show through a search based on a topic about a craft that she creates. And in this given occasion, she wrote in to me to say, I passed something along about how to do something as if I was an expert. And it was irresponsible and egregious. It was clear that she given her background, had experience at this endeavor. In short, she took offense at me passing myself off as an expert on the topic and in no uncertain terms ensured that I knew that it was an affront to people like her who knew how to do what it was that I spoke about. In that moment, I read the email and I fell apart. On the spot, I had a moment where I felt like I was ashamed and that I had finally jumped the shark and screwed something up, which, quite frankly, is always a concern of mine because I try to be hypervigilant and never steer someone wrong in the things I try to share about how to do something. But, you know, I took a pause And I went back to what I presented and re-listened to it. And lo and behold, you know what? I was clear in that piece that I was up front, just like I'm doing in this moment. I conveyed that I didn't have experience and presented it as if I laid out a plan of action that I'm going to embark on and told you what I was going to try. In the end, it was not ambiguous, and I felt a huge relief. I wrote her back and suggested she listen again, and after a few exchanges, which quite frankly did not sway her, she pretty much suggested that I should delete what I said, send a retraction, and I would really be well served to service the people who listen to the podcast by sending people to her resources because... Well, she knew what she was talking about, and she was an expert. Now, I feel like I didn't misresent my intentions on that day, but as you could tell with my laborious recount of the interaction, I'm going to say it was a lesson I took to heart. I did learn something. From that point forward, I'm gun-shy to tell you of something I'm planning to do without this disclaimer. 
I'm explicitly telling you here and now that I might sound like I know what I'm talking about when I go through it, but I've not done this yet, so have no illusions to my expertise on this topic. Mm. Yeah, the underlying smarmy part of me, and yes, I think every single person, even the most righteous one, has an underlying smarmy part of them, says I did my good deed and I can continue. Kevin moment, as it turns out, what she took issue with and said wouldn't work. The major thing she was having a problem with and what I said worked perfectly fine. <laughs> but apparently it wasn't the way that she did it. And so I was patently wrong. Did I tell you that I could be smarmy sometimes? I am sorry I'm going to be labor at this point just a smidge longer. Additionally, there's one thing to share, and perhaps it's a technicality, but it's relevant to what I'm going to share with you. And I think you need to know this. I said I've never made dipped taper candles, which is what I'm going to talk about. That doesn't mean I'm wholly unexperienced, inexperienced on this topic. The building blocks of the underlying requirements I have plenty of experience with. Processing wax, choosing wicks for candles, melting wax for candle making, the troubles of why candles don't burn well. I actually do have true practical experience in many of these things as I've worked with wax for products of the hive and I've made beadwax candles of different shapes and sizes, but alas, taper candles is a variation that I have not done yet. So what do you say we consider making our boxes bigger? I've spent way too much time on this disclaimer. I find the best place to get started with any endeavor is to get organized. How do I always say? Plan the work, work the plan. For this one, you're going to need wick material, wax, a handful of utensils, and a few items for the operation that you choose to run, including some sort of heat source. To clarify that statement, I'm going to quickly describe the process and interchangeably expand on the choices you have to run the operation. The essence of the process is that you drape some wick material from a bar and you dunk it down into a vat of melted wax. You dip, pull it out, let it cool on the wick, and then once cool, you dip again. You could do this one candle at a time, or, as I'm going to describe, you could make a homemade jig so you could do multiple candles at a time. Your approach is yin and yang with the vessel that is holding the wax you are going to dip the wicks into. I'm going to talk about what I plan to do, and I'm sure that you can conjure up any alternatives that might suit you using the reference concepts as your guide. For us, we happen to have a hot plate. And to describe what I intend to do, I plan to place an old, large stock pot, mostly filled with water, on that hot plate. Inside the stock pot will be a gallon tin. Let me take a moment to describe this one-off specialized item that I intend to source for this and the rationale as to why I would take this particular measure 
for the one fussy part of the kit, which is the tin. If you go to your local supermarket, Walmart, Costco, you'll likely find a novel item in the olive oil section. It seems by my account, at least in our region, most stores still sell an old-fashioned metal format container of one gallon of olive oil. We have them at our local ShopRite. They sell them at our local Costco. And so I'm surmising, but I could be wrong, that it's not an exotic thing to find. If I describe this tin, it's square, rectangular. It's tall and it makes the perfect shape for the task at hand. I intend to buy one of these and given our current situation is the olive oil container is low, I'm going to transfer the olive oil contents out of it into plastic holding so that I can have the tin for this operation. It is the quintessential vessel for this operation and it's going to sit perfectly in the stock pot and it's going to afford the ability to dip several wicks at a time. It's the optimal shape for creating the wax vat that is tall and in the right dimension for dipping, say, six candles draped over a jig. Goldilocks, not too big, not too small, just right. This is where I could say to you, you do you. Peek around at what you have and grasp that. What you're trying to do is set up a situation not unlike a bain-marie or simply or said a double boiler. You have a vessel nested in hot water that heats the wax to a liquid state. Depending on how long your wicks are and how many you intend to dunk at any given time, you get to go your own way as to how you want to set up your workspace. If you're doing one at a time, you don't need this gallon thing that I'm describing. But for us, I'm going to follow the suggestions of some of the videos that I saw and source that style of tin that I saw others using. Now let's talk about the dipping rack, which is what I'm going to call this thing that holds the wicks so I can refer to it during the process. The setup is like this. You place your hot plate on a table. You take a scrap piece of material. In my case, I'm going to fashion a small piece of plywood for the job. And you cut the dimension that will hold four wicks draped over the dipping rack to create eventually eight candles. The length and width of the jig, the dipping rack, will be commensurate to the shape of the tin jug gallon thing that I described a moment ago that I'm going to dip into. My thought is you tape or maybe even pin the wicks at the top of the jig. Space them out obviously even across the jig but not so wide that they don't fall into the tin. And use that as your anchor for dipping the repeated dunking of the wicks until they amass the dimension for the calendar you're going for. At the bottom of the wicks, as they hang down on either side, you tie a nut or something to hold the 
tension of the wick so it's straight up and down during the dunking. There's another tip coming in a moment for that. Now, you personally, if you want to get fancy and spend some more time on this jig, the dipping rack, to make grooves to hold the wicks in place and whatever, knock yourself out. Some do, from what I've seen, but I'm really not aspiring to go that far. Just trying to make a simple implement to dip the wicks so that they make the tapers to the dimension that I want. Let's stop there for a moment and turn to discussion about some particulars on handling the wax. It's generally accepted that beeswax melts at around 145 degrees, 62 degrees Celsius. And at 185 degrees Fahrenheit, 85 degrees Celsius, it will discolor and should it reach 400 degrees, 200 degrees Celsius, it will become explosive. If I consider 145 to 185, 62 to 85, that's a 40 degree range that you have to work in. And I'm going to say this with a smile. If you want, you can heat the wax and when it starts to melt, it's ready for dipping. Yeah. But there's a bit more to it than that. Some of how the candle performs once it is sitting in your candelabra seems to depend on what temperature it was when it was dipped or poured. One guide tells me that through a troubleshooting tip, quote, when you are struggling with tunneling during candle burn, try a larger wick or pouring your candle at a higher temperature, end quote. Now, I'm the sort that would take the effort to measure with precision, and as such, I'm going to utilize equipment to measure the temperature of the wax and hold it in the right range. I'm not sure if what I'm about to say is backed by science or consensus. I couldn't find a fact-based recommendation. Just resource after resource after resource that seems to have settled that 155 to 160 degrees Fahrenheit, it's the preferred range. That's 68 to 71 degrees Celsius for those who follow that way. Now, Kevin moment. This could be an opportunity to use an immersion circulator as it's exemplary when it comes to holding a water bath at a specific temperature. I have to say that's an option for us, as I've talked about. We have one, but in this case, I think it's just simpler to forego that complexity and use the dial on the hot plate to bring the temperature up to the zone and hold it. So I think I'm going to leave the fancy stuff in the cabinet for this one. End of Kevin moment. I've seen some guys that say you could use an old crock pot, which is something that quite a few of us have if you've ever rendered wax for wax melting operations. On the premise of the hot plate that I've been talking about, we just happen to have one because We've been beekeepers for over a decade, and 
I know how useful they are for this type of thing and bought one for pennies on the dollar at a garage sale. And we use it for this particular thing. I've done wax operations on our kitchen stove in the past. If you drop wax on your hot stove in your kitchen, no matter how careful you try to be, you will do that. Ask me how I know. It is such a chore to get it cleaned up. That waxy residue is there for weeks and it just drives you batty. That's why we took the effort to source a hot pot, a single small burner hot plate. And over the years, we've used it over and over again to melt wax for lip balm and small votive candles and even just rendering the abstract globs of wax out of our solar wax melter to small pretty pucks for storage and sale. The point here is you want to find your place about how to control the temperature for the wax. If you're doing it the way we're doing it, it's going to be held in a water bath. And there are a lot of different ways to measure the temperature. And I'm simply going to say, you got to figure out how you want to do it. I'm not directing you. Do it by eye if you must, but I would suggest that a thermometer of some sort is really probably the better way to go. You know, there's those point and shoot thermometer things in the marketplace. Don't have one of those. I wonder if the temperature underneath the top layer is different and whether one of those things would work, but no practical experience, so I can't tell you. In the end, I think actually most normal cooking thermometers are going to suit the purpose because usually they go fine for measuring boiling water, which is 212, way higher than that. But there's the caveat, of course, that whatever you dip in the wax is going to have to be cleaned of wax after. So keep that in mind. It's not possible to do, but it is a touch fussy. One of the last things I want to mention about plan to work and work to plan is about getting organized when you're working with wax. Because wax can cause third degree burns in an instant if it's spilled on a human being or pet. If you plan to consider playing along, should you be inspired by what we're going to do, whatever you do, please do not Skip this consideration of the safety of the workspace. You have to keep children who are too young to understand the danger, toddlers and the like, out of the space. Use common sense about the young people you might bring in. It only takes a momentary lapse for tragedy to occur. As a former EMT, I've seen what hot scalding liquids can do to skin and I can only imagine what would end up if you poured scalding wax on someone. In my eyes, it's one of the worst possible things you could do as far as inflicting harm on a human or a pet. I could vividly, if I close my eyes, remember the calls of burns of this nature, especially the ones that tend to involve children. Please, Please keep this front and center for yourself and for anyone who is present. Burns from hot wax spilled on someone 
puts you in for a helicopter ride to a burn center and months of recovery, let alone the disfigurement that comes with it. Now, I've purposely been graphic in hopes that you will take pause and give gravitas if you ever venture down this path. You need to inspect your setup. Make sure your workspace is stable. Keep clutter at a minimum. Do everything you could do to create and keep that safe workspace while there's hot water and wax present. Not a bad idea to have a fire extinguisher handy, especially if you choose to go your own way and set up a rig over a gas flame, which I don't recommend. I'm avoiding that myself. I've seen people do this type of work on the interwebs and in person on a gas stove. One of the things that I'll tell you happens all the time is when you pour the wax, if you're ever doing that, and you pull it back and the wax runs down the container and off the bottom, guess where it's going to go when it's hit to the flame? And it'll chase that wax all the way up the side of the container and into the container. If you spill hot wax on an open flame, let's just say personally, it's not worth the risk. It's just not. That's why people almost always use hot plates for this type of work. For how to render wax, I would consider going back to episode 50 where our friend Charlie Ilsley talks about one of the processes he used for waxing, for creating wax for his operation. And as an aside, one of the links to the guide I opened with is in the show notes and it also has a summary of how to filter wax but for this, I'm not going to go into that. That's something that you could do on the side, figure out how to do wax. For us, we have clean rendered wax out of our solar wax melter, which if you dig a little bit, you'll probably find some information about that too. Now you can't have a candle without a wick and wax. And it goes without saying that you need a reasonable amount of wax for the operation. How much you need is dependent upon the vessel you're using to hold the wax in while you're dipping. A gallon container requires anywhere from 8 to 10 pounds by weight of wax when you melt it down. The right way to think about this though is you need as much wax to start the dipping process, but you also have to consider that every time you dip a candle, you're taking some away. You might start with a gallon of melted wax in the beginning, but over time, as the candles build up, you're going to have to pitch in additional wax that's going to melt quickly so that your candles can take it in. I hope that makes sense. And coming back to it, you need 8 to 10 to start, but ultimately you really need 12 to 15 to have some excess to load in as you're consuming the wax by dipping the candles. Here I have a little guidance. It's not a necessary item, but in practice it's going to make a lot of sense and it's what I plan to take advantage of. I've rendered some beeswax in pastel form so I can replenish what we use and keep the wax in the tin topped off without cooling it down too much. The pastilles in their small form will readily melt and are not going to hamper the dipping process. When I take the 
taper out and allow it to cool, I could pitch in a couple pastilles to make up for it. And by the time I bring the taper back, they should be good to go. I covered a way to make pastilles in the previous episode. And by the way, I tried the process in the interim. And well, the plan that I used worked amazingly well. The small bits of wax were easily to pop out from the silicone molds and when you add them to melted wax they dissolve almost instantly which is what the appeal in the design was for the first place. Now I'm not going to tell you that it wasn't a bit tedious to do but for this one-off activity making pastilles it's to me a no-brainer it's going to be the perfect solution for this. Now the last word on wax before I turn to wick it's reasonable to assume that for the purest candles, you're going to want to use capping wax and you're going to want to filter it to ensure it's squeaky clean as no honey residues, dirt, errant particles, anything that could be pulled in to the pores of the wick and clog the flow of the wax. And if you don't follow this, you're going to end up with a candle that won't burn or is going to sputter or have problems. It's so important to heed this advice as dirty wax causes all kinds of candle problems. You know, even more burning unevenly too fast. And well, you're going to get the picture. Most problems with candles that do not perform well is either tied to one of two things, dirty wax or the wrong wick being used. Well, we talked about wax. Now it's time to turn to wicks. By my way of thinking, one of the most underestimated critical factors of the candle that performs the way you want it to is the wick. When you dig into this, you're going to learn that there's so much science behind what seems so simple of a material. For what is a wick other than string, right? Well, actually, no. <laughs> if you look closer, you'll find that wicks are purpose designed. One might argue engineered and wholly suitable for the purpose based on their construction. And you need to consider this when it comes to the guidance. Humans have interfaced with candles for centuries. There's a lot to know here and there's a lot of know-how here. And trust people who are experts when they tell you what type of wick to use and why. Let's talk a little bit about wick construction and some on the shape and size of wick options. And to go a level deeper, think about how a strand of string is made. It could be a simple single strand or it could be several strands woven into a single string, the materials, the weaving pattern and more, each of these things in their engineering, the characteristics have to do with how the fuel moves through the candle and up to the flame. Braid, thickness, other factors, they all play a role in whether the candle might light well, sustain the flame, whether it burns crooked, whether the wax seeps off the side of the candle and dribbles down in big globs, whether soot is created and 
even more factors. Additionally, the wick can employ a myriad of material. It can be made of paper, hemp, wood, substrates, and of course, cotton. From what I gathered, cotton is said to be the superior choice for beeswax candles. They afford a better flow of the fuel and they handle the vapors in the flame construction in a superior manner. There's something about the cotton that it radiates the heat further, which melts the beeswax optimally. And it results in the right bend at the top so that the candle burns cleaner. Beeswax, in comparison to say paraffin wax, which is probably more common these days for candles, it has a different viscosity. Viscosity, it burns differently. Beeswax is also a hotter melt pool, based on what I read. And as such requires a larger wick than say in contrast to other waxes. The short of this is those who have been doing this have settled on what I tell you. And while the options vary, most recommendations I've seen stay true to use a square braid, cotton-based wick. Those are the two tenants recommended for beeswax tapers. Now wick materials, and in our case, our choice of cotton, they come in plain cotton, if you buy them, or primed cotton. The prime part is recommended. And it simply means that somewhere along the line, the material has been dipped in wax to help with how the candle will burn by being charged and adjusted. If you buy plain cotton material, you can prime it yourself by simply dipping it in hot wax following the right process. And then you set it aside and it saturates in the material. And when it's fully cool, it'll be right for your candles. Shape and material, interesting. But there's one more part to the wick triangle and it has to do with size. Take a moment to think about the difference between a candle that's four inches wide across and one that might be a one inch thick, like a taper. The wick inside a four inch candle has to burn at a rate that it consumes the wax across the top of the candle to a three and three quarter inch diameter. You don't want it to burn all the way across because then the wax spills out. You get it wrong and it burns a hole down through the bottom of the candle. That's a condition called tunneling. And often the puddle of wax in a tunneling situation, using a layman's description of this, it snuffs itself out because it suffocates from an engineering shortcoming. There's a similar dynamic when it comes to the dimension of the wick you choose for taper candles. Is the candle gonna be a thin one inch final width, or you're looking for a more chubby two and a half inch diameter. In principle, when you get beyond specific thickness, 
you have to change the dimension of the wick so that it can do what its namesake is. Wick up more fuel to burn at the flame site and the wax puddle is operating properly to consume the candle beneath as it drones through the candle. The answer to the wick size you choose is it depends. God, I hate that answer. Are you going for svelte tapers or chubby sausages? Both are equally viable. And if you have to take a moment to consider what wick to choose, select the one based on your dimension and go just a touch bigger. Example, in our cases, we have sconces that we use that hold a candle that's one inch, one and a half inch. So we're looking for a wick that suits that thickness. For this endeavor, I'm going to choose a size two square braid wick primed with wax. As a general rule, general rule, one inch candles can use a size one wick. Two inch candles go to size two, three, size three. When using beeswax with a square braid wick that has been primed, you could kind of match the number. That being said though, every guide that I've seen offers a caveat that you got to test this and figure out what works for your configuration. But typically you want to go a little bit up one size when working with beeswax because of the type of material it is. So consider your first go around to be a test run and your mileage may vary. And eventually, if you try this a couple times, you'll come up with the combination and that implores you to take good notes so that you can make sure that you get it right. When it comes to taper, the interesting thing is you can do the first set of candles at whatever you want, try to burn them. And if they don't work or they burn too fast, the next time you do it, you could just dip them more or dip them less and still not waste the wick material that you purchased. When you order the wick material, you have the choice of ordering it plain or primed. A primed wick is a wick that's been dipped in wax and allowed to cool. It is recommended that you buy a prime wick, but if you bought a plain one, you could prime it yourself. And what you're doing is you're removing all the air spaces in the wick material and saturating the material to a more even and desirable burn. How you do this is you simply melt the wax, dip the plain material and let it soak. As it sits in the wax, the air in the material is going to escape and float up to the top. And after a few minutes, you can fish the wick out and place it on some wax paper. As an aside, you could use beeswax for priming your wicks, but I, from what I've seen, it's probably better to use paraffin in the case of the actual wick itself. You can melt an old candle for this. Go grab a paraffin candle, melt it and prime your wicks. And when you're trying to fish it out, use a toothpick or a long skewer to get it out of the melt pool. When you pluck your wick out, 
it's going to be curled in a natural shape. And of course, ideally, when you drape it over your rack, you want to have it straight. There's a trick of the trade for this. You take two spare pieces of string, little scraps, and you tie items to both sides of them. On one end, you put a heavy object. Maybe you could tie a bolt or something really heavy. And on the other end, you tie it to an alligator clip. Set up your workspace where you can lay the primed wick that you just fished out of the pool across something that's the full length and just a little bit shorter than the wick itself. You would take the wick out of the pool, lay it across your wax paper. On one end, you would clip an alligator clip. On the other end, you would clip an alligator clip. And because the other side of the clip string is a heavy weight, it's going to pull the alligator clips apart and stretch taut your wick. And as it cools, it's going to dry arrow straight. That's how you do this. Now you can figure out whatever works for you. You can hang it with something. There's a bunch of different ways, but this is one trick that I saw that, you know, with a couple little clips and some bolts, you can figure out how to make straight wicks. The other thing I think you could probably do is fish it out of the pool, let it cool to the point where it's handled. You know, you could touch it with your fingers, be careful and pull it and hold it until it cools. But I digress. It's worth the trouble. The answer is yes, a primed wick is worth the trouble. A primed wick provides the fuel to start the candle when you light it. When you leave it natural cotton, it's burning the cotton. And the flame that develops from burning the cotton is not hot enough to melt the candle wax for a sustained period to start the chain reaction that burns the candle. In contrast, when you're using a primed wick, it creates this more robust flame that sustains the starter flame until the wax of the candle melts and becomes incorporated in the flame and gets it going. You know, a little bit to soak in there on uh, priming and wicks and whatever, but as the episode is, it's probably one of the more important things to pay attention to. Okay, I've probably worn you out. And the good news is all of the preamble is done. It's time. It's time to talk about the process that you might employ to do this. It's rather straightforward, actually. <laughs> so with no further ado, this is the process I intend to use in that, you know, you could consider if you were going to try this endeavor. The first thing is I'm going to set out all my stuff, the wax, the wicks, the pots, the utensils needed. Right nearby, I'm going to have some wax in the form of the pastille so I can replenish whatever I'm using. I'm going to have my dipping rack jig set up with the wicks draped over, bolts tied to the end so that they hang straight and true as I dip them. And I'm going to prep four whips wicks to drape over the dipping rig that'll give me eight leads and since my 
dipping rig is the right dimension, it should fit perfectly down into my gallon container. I'm going to set up a large stock pot with water on the hot plate and I'm going to put the tin inside with the wax and liquefy it until I get it to the right temperature. On the right side of that rig, I'm going to set up a second tall stock pot filled with plain water. I'm going to bring that wax up to 160 degrees Fahrenheit and I'm going to hold it there the best I can. Once the wax is to temperature and everything's in place, I'm going to commence dipping. From here, I'm going to dip the wicks in the wax straight down and straight up with smooth motions. It's really important that you work like a robot here. Don't swing them around. And the smoother you work, the more consistent the buildup is to the candle. When the dipped wax is pulled up, you turn to the right, dunk it in the water pot alongside, and that quick dip cools the wax just enough so that it's set. And you pull it out, let the water drip off, it'll run off readily, turn back to your left, and dip once more for another layer. The plan is you're going to redip the candle for another layer while the wax is still warm, but it's not hot. If you don't do this right, you don't let it cool, you'll put the wax back in and the heat of the wax will melt off the one that you just applied. You need it to be cool enough that when you dip it, the hot wax clings to it. And if you see that you're pulling it out and the candle's not getting bigger, leave more time for it to cool. It's something apparently you learn by trial and error. And then as you move along, you row right through it. Continue dipping, cooling, re-dipping until you're satisfied with the result. Now there's a detail here that you can decide on how you want to go. You could dip the candle full length in the wax or somewhere along the line, you can just make it a touch shallow each time you go in. This, of course, the practice harkens to the namesake of the style of candle in that it yields a slight taper where the candle is thicker at the base. You'll have to practice to get this where you want it. Once you have the candles where you want, you're going to let them cool slightly. And there's one additional step where you take a pair of scissors, you cut right above the bolt that's been serving its purpose. And maybe you're going to dip a couple more times to get the final layers and seal off the bottom. More on that in a minute. Um, you know, there's a couple tips and troubleshooting notes to keep in mind while you're doing this. If your candles appear rippled, the wax could be too hot or you're dipping them too fast. One smooth fluid motion down, pause for a beat and pull it up. Look how the candle looks. And if it's not working to your liking, depending on how much heat you have in the wax, adjust accordingly, go faster or go slower. 
In the end, if your candle bottom's not square or not the shape you want, you can warm some form of implement and rub the heated surface on the bottom of the candle. Or sometimes I've seen people take a spare pan that they use for wax process and they heat it up. And when the candle is fully cool, they just rub the bottom of the candle along the base of the pot until they get it to the shape that they want. There's a few more tips, I suppose, that you could learn along the way. But the good news is, and this is the, the penultimate tip, if you mess it up somehow, you don't like the candle, you can remelt it. Just put it back in the wax until all the wax melts off and then start over again. It'll all fall off in there and you could pull it out and then just restart the dipping process. So it seems to me with some common sense and good old fashioned wisdom, once you get set up with all the candle dipping part, it should be the easiest part of the journey. But, you know, maybe that's the eight-year-old kid in me speaking because that's what I remember from Liberty Village and, and having uh, a moment. So really, that's it. That's where I'm going to leave it. And that's all that's fit to print, at least what I think I could tell you in the moment. Now, coming back to center, this is my plan. This is what I'm going to do. And... I'm, of course, somewhere along the line going to tell you how it turned out. And if it's a train wreck, I am always pretty candid about telling you it didn't work well. And if it works well, well, I'll tell you what was good, bad, and what I learned that I didn't know, which always comes to pass when you do something like this. The question begs, when is then now? And the answer is soon. It will be either next weekend or the weekend after. I haven't ordered my wicks yet, but that's really the only thing that stands in the way. I know that we have a day off from work on a Monday coming up. President's Day, if I'm not mistaken. That might be the target day to circle on the calendar. So I hope you found this interesting, this single sidebar topic. I know it was a long one and I covered a lot of ground, but you know, if you spend a decade researching a topic and then eventually you kind of recount what it is you learned, there's a lot to tell. It's important to note that it takes a village and there's a handful of links that accompany this episode, how to make beeswax candles, the countryside issue that I talked about some videos that show the process and more. If you're interested in those, www.bkcorner.org show notes for episode 237. And I hope you found this interesting, even if you have no inclination as to how to make a candle, because, you know, somewhere along the line, someone, since you're a beekeeper, might ask, well, how are candles made? beeswax candles and at least you'd know some sound bites about how it goes stay tuned and i will tell you how this went in short order like our beloved bees when beekeepers go together we can accomplish great things thanks for listening everybody and be well 
Take care.